I think it's fair to say that a lot of city managers are very naive to the legal dynamics that are out there swirling against us when it comes to being in a very perilous situation that you found yourself in. You don't have any friends. You don't have any allies. You don't have what you believe to be as a network of support is really a false sense of security. All right, all right, all right. I'm Joe Turner, and this is City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. This is part two of my interview with Daniel Rosemond, the uh, author of Death of the Public Servant. He's the former city manager for Hallandale Beach, Florida, and he was uh, part of a wrongful termination lawsuit against the city of Hallandale Beach. He uh, wrote the book documenting his, uh, his story, and we are going to go into part two of this interview, and that is the revenge of the public servant. And this is where our hero, our hero goes and kicks some butt <laughs> against the uh, the city in court. Daniel, welcome to the show, and thank you for being on. Thank you, sir, for having me again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I thought what I would do real quick, Daniel, for the audience uh, benefit is just go through a quick little rundown of the timeline to kind of bring us up to speed and just sort of the big picture. So in November of 29, November 29, 2016, that is when the elected body, the Hallandale Beach Commission, even though the, uh, the election had not even been certified, but you had a council member who was seated, and then they proceeded to ram through on a 3-2 vote your termination with cause, which means that you were not subject to any severance protections or anything like that. You were just basically kicked to the curb, and you were, have to fend for yourself. That happens on November 29th, but because you of your city's charter, they have to hold a hearing uh, on December 28th to give you some sort of opportunity to answer to or respond to this termination. It's a little bit of a sham deal, as we've talked about already. Um, we might get into a little bit more here. And then you were basically left to fend for yourselves at that point. Your first court hearing isn't until July of 2017, as I understand it. And that's when you guys were, you and your, your legal team were essentially battling against the city's attempt to just dismiss your case. That was like the first attempt to stall. And then you got to fast forward to March 16th of 2020. That's when your actual uh, legal case is set to be heard by a judge. But then it gets thrown up in the air because of this thing called the COVID pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. And you're put into this uh, another state of uncertainty and ambiguity with your life. So your case goes all the way to February 2022 before it gets heard. And that's when you go through a nine-day trial, correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then that's where you kind of leave off in, in the book. That's where, that's where we're, we're kind of left, right? So can you walk us through what happens uh, real quick for the, for the audience? What happens after February 2022 when you win your court case? Well, there was obviously a lot of elation from an emotional standpoint in terms of what happens. I would say for the first month and a half to two months after the, the jury's verdict, I was really in a state of kind of disbelief that A, we had gotten to that point after all of the delays, and B, that we had actually, you know, won in such convincing fashion. It was really amazing. But there was another component to our complaint, which was the front pay component, which was always supposed to be part of the original trial, our complaint consisted of the wrongful termination and the whistleblower complaint, as well as a front pay component. Anytime okay. that you have a wrongful termination, the defendant, in this case, the city of Hallandale Beach, 
has the ability to present to the court how they are proposing to mitigate if in fact they are deemed to be wrongfully at fault. So they could have A, offered me a job back, uh, which is what they did in court, or B, we offered the fact that I didn't want to go back. It was a hostile environment. And so we, we claimed that there should be a front pay portion, meaning how many years in advance should the city compensate me for what they did. And so that, that was a bench, what's called a bench trial. So there's no jury in that situation. It's just a judge. And we present evidence. Uh, we present relevant cases. And the judge made a determination and provided a front pay amount that the city is also responsible for. So, so, so Daniel, sorry to interrupt you there, but it, so my understanding is that there were three segments or components to your settle, your judgment, uh, not your settlement, but your judgment, right? There was the breach of contract, which was that $92,000 sort of a severance clause provision that you were denied when you were fired with cause, right? Right. And then there was the 3 million component for non-economic damages. That's an aspect that we'll get into later on in the conversation. And then is the front pay referring to the 1.3 million part of this judgment or am I misunderstanding that dynamic? Yeah, no, the 1.3 was actually the back pay. So everything up until that point, uh, the way it's calculated is that the defendant, if they if the jury deems them to be at fault, is responsible for my back pay. So not only did they pay me the contract that I should have gotten, but because of the wrongful termination, I'm also eligible for back pay. So from the date that they terminated me, December 28th, 2016, all the way through February, whatever the date of the uh, the jury trial was, the city had to calculate or had to pay me that. And we had uh, an expert witness who provided the economic breakdown of how that was calculated. So they took into account everything that I had earned on my own through my real estate or whatever consulting that I had done up to that point. And then they, you know, factored in things like interest and all of those uh, financial components. So that was the back pay component. Okay, got you. Okay, so the front pay then is something that's not even discussed in the book. It happens after the book basically ends, so it's to speak. Really, so, so what happens in court when you are with this uh, bench trial with the judge? How does that go for you? It, it goes well. The judge, I mean, we didn't get everything that we wanted. We wanted a certain number of years. And, and the way that front pay calculations are done, everybody, I think, approaches it a little bit different. But because of my age, I'm already in my, you know, in my 50s. And we claim that I had wanted to work until a certain point of my life. And so you factor in how much I would have been earning given periodic merit increases. And the way that I calculated it was that I, I maxed it out at a certain number. And so the judge looks at that evidence. Obviously, he looks at the evidence provided by the defendant and comes up with a number. It wasn't the the number that we wanted, but it was, you know, it was it was a number. And so okay. when you factor all that in, it's the total amount that the city is now liable for. Um, and so it brings us to the point of their filing the appeal. So after the front pay hearing, the city proceeded to file their appeal of all of that, which is where we are today. Okay. And this is where it gets a little bit hazy for me. Okay. So I hope you can unpack this. So the jury 
fines for you on the three components uh, that we talked about. There's the breach of contract, there's the back pay, and then there's the non-economic damages. Then you go to this uh, bench trial with the judge and the judge finds in your favor for the front pay. So there's four components to your monetary settlement or, or judgment. I don't want to use the word settlement because you won in court. You didn't settle. Is right. that, is that, that's a fair, that's, that's a proper that's vernacular, abs- right? That's absolutely accurate. Right. Okay. So you have this judgment, two different judgments that are basically in your favor and there's four components to it. Now, Hallandale Beach is is appealing these uh, judgments, these court cases, uh, these court awards or whatnot. Are they appealing all four components or are they yes. appealing? They are. Yes. So you literally have not received one penny of these of these victories at all. Is that my understanding of that correctly? Not, not, not even a not even a uh, an attaboy. Good job. Congratulations. Nothing. We have not. We not only have I not gotten anything, but my attorneys have not been paid. That's what I was just going to get into too, as well, because obviously, uh, as you talk about in your book, they work for you on a contingency basis, right? Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so we're going to come back to that in a second, but I think it's very important for people to understand because you have not received one penny, even though you've received a multi, multi million dollar uh, victory in court on two separate instances, one with the jury and one with the judge on a standalone uh, bench trial. And yet you still have not received one penny. I think there's a lot of people out there who have this misconception that just because you won in court, you know, everything's great. And Daniel Rosemond land, I mean, we, here we are, we're, we're seven years later and you still haven't received one penny, right? Not uh, only have I not received one penny, but the the fact that the all four components are under appeal, there's the the threat that all of that could essentially go, go away. away. Because when you go to appellate court, you know it's a different set of players. So the fourth district court of appeals, which is the particular court that is hearing this case, could very well determine that the judge, the jury, the trial itself was incorrectly tried. And could determine. Uh, this is one of the things that in the in the city's motion could determine that the trial has to start all over again. If you put that into the context of anybody who's read the book to to understand the emotional toll that it takes, just the the mere inkling or the mere possibility that we would have to do this all over again is almost like okay, it's traumatic. It's very <laughs> it's, traumatic. I, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I'm about to slip my wrist. You know that type of yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can't imagine the stress. I mean, because yes, you have the elation of victory, but you always have that fear that it can be rub- the, r- the rugs can be pulled out right from underneath you uh, once Correct. again. Yeah. Correct. And you never know with our justice system. I mean, you just never know. I mean, you, it's, you don't. So, you don't. okay. So we have a quick update on where you stand now. Dan, you, you've gone through something that very few city managers will actually go through in their career. You have a very unique life experience, a very unique perspective uh, on this whole entire situation. When so many city managers are listening to this podcast and they don't ever want to be in your shoes, right? When, when did it dawn on you? This might be a really dumb question, but when did it really hit you smack in the in the face? I need to get an attorney. Man, that, that's you know for a while while this thing was happening, you know, going back to your your timeline synopsis, when this thing was happening at the beginning, I thought. I don't need an attorney, man. I mean, I can defend myself. I've been a city manager, been in enough scenarios with the council or the commission to know how to essentially put together my own presentation to debunk the ludicrousness of of the three stated reasons. Right. But it was 
in conversation, I can't remember even who it was with, but in conversation, somebody says, you know, you probably should get somebody to just represent you. And I kind of haphazardly reached out to somebody who, who was a friend, number one, but secondly, he had been an attorney who had I had worked with in a previous city doing labor negotiations with our uh, union. And uh, he's a labor attorney. And I said, hey, man, would you deal with this for me? And he's like, sure, no problem. It should be a pretty easy thing because you've got a, you've got a, an employment agreement. So it was always intended to be a real, you know, easy thing. Just just draw up a, a separation agreement and be done it, with this it. This is this is a gentleman. You're t- in the in the episode one. You talked about how you had this separation agreement drawn up when you went into right. talk to London and whatnot, and you thought Correct. it was easy peasy, right? So this is the gentleman Correct. that you talked to about being on your side uh, before you actually were officially terminated. Correct, right, Freddie okay. Freddie Pereira. Okay, so you have Freddie Pereira helping you out before you get officially terminated, and then after you're terminated on November 29th, and you start realizing, okay, this is this is going downhill, and we have this hearing coming up in December. uh, You have, I think, you reached out to additional. This is where you consulted with two different firms, I think, to try to get representation for you at the hearing as co-counsel or something like that. So let me, so let me, let me provide a little bit of context. Freddie, who was my attorney at the time, was working with his previous law firm. At the time, we all thought that it was going to be a pretty simple thing. When I talk about the fact that we had wanted to extend the presentation beyond the December 28th date, Freddie was still my attorney, and he was going to be out of the country. But because the city commission decided, no, we're going to stick to that date, at that point, Freddie says, listen, I think we need to get a separate set of counsel because I'm not going to be available. Number one, I'm going to be out of the country. Number two, another element which I don't get into in the book, he was in the process of actually separating from his law firm and going off on his own. So he was like, if this thing goes sideways, we really are going to need co-counsel just to help because I'm going to be busy trying to find office space, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so we reached out to uh, well, and, and and Daniel, if you don't mind my interrupting there, I think there's also a third component too, because wasn't he also working for a firm that was intimately involved with a bunch of other municipal governments? Yes. And so you had this, you know, you had this, this conflicts of going all, you know, it's a very small world in municipal attorney land, right? Yes, sir. And in fact, the day of my court victory on the way home, Freddie calls me, right? And he he heard about it from my attorney. So he calls me and tells me, hey, man, congratulations. He goes, I've never told you this, but the decision for me to go off on my own was because my firm did not want to represent you. And uh, I had been I had been on the fence about wanting to go off on my own. And when they said, no, we're not going to take this because it's going to jeopardize our clientele, that was what solidified it for me. He goes, in my spirit, I knew it was time for me to go off on my own. So he says, I've never told you that until today. And I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize wow. that. Seven years later. Wanted, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have wanted that kind of pressure, but he says, no, no, it wasn't because of you. I was already thinking about it. Your case was what really just kind of solidified it and took it over the top for me in, in terms of me being able to go off on my own. And he's been enormously successful with his own practice since that time. Awesome. You know, we're going to have a third episode called The Betrayal of the Public Servant. So I don't want to give anything too much away, Daniel, but in reading your book and having this conversation, our offline conversations, our pre-interview prep, I think it's fair to say that a lot of city managers are very naive to the legal dynamics that are out there swirling against us when it comes to being in a very perilous situation that you found yourself in. 
You don't have any friends. You don't have any allies. You don't have what you believe to be as a network of support is really a false sense of security. That's yeah, how I would put it. Well, yeah, we're going to we're going to dig into that a lot more. Uh, so I, I, the third episode is going to be explosive. So if you're listening to this episode, you need to make sure you tune in episode three because we're going to talk about the betrayal of the public servant. Um, so, Daniel, you know, I think now would be a good time to kind of talk about the um, maybe introduce your legal counsel, maybe for the people who are listening so they can kind of follow along, because I know you had a you have a, a legal team that you're very proud of that represented you through this case on a contingency basis. And we're going to get into that as well. So can you just give us the key players so people can follow along at home? I would. And let me back up for just a minute. So uh, early December, Freddie was still my attorney. He was um, had told the commission that he was going out of the country, but he was at the, at the time considering starting his own firm. So he gives me a few names for me to interview. And I was eager to try to find someone to, to be able to just be on board. So my wife and I go in and interview this one attorney that he had sent. She's a sole practitioner, had some court experience with dealing with the federal government cases, et cetera, and sends me her engagement letter. And I'm actually in my home office at the time, ready to sign the engagement letter because I just wanted somebody on, on board. your side. Yeah. And uh, Freddie calls me at the time. He says, hey, have you signed that engagement letter? And I'm like, no, I'm about to. He goes, don't do it. There's one more person that I want you to talk to. And I said, who is it? He said, it's a guy by the name of Brian Lerner. He works with a firm, Kim Vaughn Lerner. He's a board-certified, top-notch labor attorney. At least talk to him. And if you decide to go with, with Gina Cadogan at the time, then it's your call. But at least talk to this guy. So I'll never forget, and I think I talked to I think I talked about this in the book, but my first conversation with Brian Lerner was at a Publix near my our old house at around 4.20 in the afternoon. He calls me, and we had about a 20-minute conversation. Nicest guy, really focused in terms of just what the law dictates, what can be done. He didn't make any false illusion. It wasn't a sales pitch. It was really more, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. You know, we're, we'd be honored to represent you. We've read, you know, kind of the the brief of your case, and and it would certainly be right in our wheelhouse. Didn't have any kind of restrictions in terms of going uh, representing me against a a municipal defendant. And so I went back and talked to my wife about it, and she's like, you know, I think that that's who we want to go with. I wasn't really feeling the other attorney, and so we ended up engaging Kim Von Lerner, and they were represented by the two of their principals. Robert Vaughn and Brian Lerner. Those were the two attorneys that actually came to my defense in that December 28th meeting. It was a transition because while Freddie was my initial attorney because of the issues that I described, Kim Von Lerner came in and they represented me during that December 20th. So they got up to speed, not only in short order, but right around the holidays. So I was floored that they would have been that available, number one, but willing to to really put in the work because they put in a significant amount of work. Well, not just willing, uh, because they were, did it on a contingency basis, right? And so a lot of us have heard about what contingency basis is and in simplistic forms, we all understand it to be that, hey, they only get paid when they win in court, correct? Correct. Is that, is correct. that literally how it happens? I mean, have you had to pay out any money at all? I mean, anything at all out of your pocket since this whole thing happened? Well, yeah, I did pay initially. Um, there was there was an engagement that I paid to 
Freddie's firm initially when right. we engaged him. And then there was a, a small amount that I paid to Kim Von Lerner at the beginning. But the bulk, the lion's share of all of the legal fees have been essentially uh, taken. Our case was taken on contingency, which, you know, when I think back, you know, when I talked in the previous episode about seeing God at work in this whole situation, this is one of those instances because they didn't have to do that, number one. And I think about what it would have cost us as a family had we had to pay the legal fees. There's no way that we would have had... We would it would have, have cost you to, everything. We, yeah. we, we wouldn't have been able to make it. I yeah. mean, it's as it is, our circumstance has been stripped back. But if we had added legal fees to that in the course of seven years, there's there's no way that we would have been able to survive, not even you know the first year uh, of this litigation process. So when they took it on a contingency basis, forgive my ignorance because I've never been down this road and I don't even know how much you know about this outside of your specific case, right? Mm -hmm. Is it common or uncommon for attorneys to take cases like this on a contingency basis versus a retainer or whatnot? Do, do, Do you have any insight on that at all? Usually what you find on contingency is the ambulance chaser yes. type cases, you right. know, the slip and falls type cases where, you know, you've seen the ads as, as well as I have and your listeners have, you know, and, we, but I, we, we only get paid, we'll represent you and we don't come right. unless you, you know, you get paid. But, on but, a, but, on a, but can I, can I interrupt you there on the Daniel? Because sure. what, what's going to happen though, is on those cases, these people, these attorneys have experience with these cases. They've done so many, they have a pretty good idea of what they're going to be able to settle. Cause most of them get settled before they even go to court. Right. Right. So they have a pretty good idea of what the expected value of the case is relative to what they're going to put in. And there's a, it's a formulaic decision. When you come to a situation like yours, it's very unique. It's very hard to quantify. You throw in the element too, and this is something I think the audience needs to, the listeners need to think about as well. You always have a dicey element when it comes to an individual suing a government agency because a government agency represents taxpayers, and you never know how that's going to play out in a jury box. Or am I right? Am I wrong on that? Absolutely, I mean, man. Absolutely. Okay. It's 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 a very unique. Yes, it's a labor um, labor dispute. But it's not like you it ain't know, you Joe, this big bad Fortune 500 company, right? Right. It's not Joe Turner versus Amazon or Joe Turner versus you know Macy's or or some other big corporation that typically will look at the cost benefit analysis of saying well, why are we even litigating? It's like okay, just just pay the guy and be done with it because it's too much money to deal with it. But then there's also the element of the jury pool consists of the very taxpayers that are. <laughs> Impacted by, the- <laughs> impacted by the decision. So it's really one of those things is like, okay, that element, all of those things were, as I was sitting in during trial, all of those elements were swirling around in my head because I'm thinking any of these jurors are going to conclude, okay, if we award this person, even though they were not any Hallandale Beach residents who were on the jury pool, they were uh, residents of Broward County. And right. so Hallandale Beach is a city in Broward County. Right. And so- because of what we understand, most taxpayers don't understand the nuances of that. I'm thinking they're going to conclude, okay, if we award what this person is is claiming, we're ultimately the ones having to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting dynamic. So what do you think Mr. Lerner saw in your case that, or the firm that would give him confidence to take your case on a contingency basis? That's a big commitment. That says something to me that tells me that they have to have some strong probability or or belief that your case has merit. Yeah. I believe that they saw all of the evidence. I mean, 
the unique the other element of of cases like this that are unique is that when things are done in the public realm and in my particular case all of the statements all of the documentation all of those allegations were done on the record so it wasn't anything that had to be uh, mined for in discovery it wasn't any backroom discussions or anything like that a lot of the things that were mentioned were done on the record during a public meeting so when they reviewed that, it was a very strong case. And so they determined that, hey, this is a type of case that the the nature of the wrongdoing by the municipal government to an individual was so, so severe and so pervasive that it was a type of case that they wanted to take on. Right. Now, they've said to me, we're very selective when it comes to the types of cases that we take on. Yours was one that rose to that level to not only consider it, but then to to take it on contingency was was amazing. Like I and, said, if if, yeah. I had, if I had had to pay for it, there's no way that we would have been sitting here right now. And, and also, too, what kind of what kind of morale boost did that give you and your family when you have these independent third party litigators who are saying, "Hey, we want this case. We think we can win this case for you, and we're not going to charge you for it." That must have been a huge moral boost of morale in the, in the household. I would think it was it was amazing. Um, you know, just to think, actually, we were not, it wasn't a morale boost as much as we were humbled by the fact that they were willing to do it. Um, because at that time, you know, our, our confidence, my confidence level was was really pretty thin. And, and even though I knew that truth was on my side, when you're up against a municipality with seemingly unlimited resources and time, I knew that it was really, you know, kind of a David and Goliath type of situation. And it was really uh, an unfair an uncomfortable type of thing. So the fact that they took it on contingency and to this day, I feel completely, you know, beholden to Brian and, and to Robert and, and Anisha and, and the entire team really, because they not only took the case, but they embraced us really from a, from an emotional and a personal standpoint. So our, every conversation was, Hey, how are you guys doing? Before right. we got into any of the, the, the specifics of the next task, it was really about how are you guys doing? Is everybody okay? You know, how are the girls? So they were always very sensitive and thoughtful in those conversations. And so they've, they've become, as I wrote about, they've become like our extended family. Yeah, there's a poignant moment in your book where you talk about. I think it's Mr. Lerner. He, you, after the after you win your case in that February court case, he, I guess, comes out into the lobby area and you just see him sobbing on his own on a bench yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was. Uh, let me tell you. It was surreal because I was dealing with my own emotion, but in that moment, I, I took a mental picture. I realized there had been, and, and I never did ask him. I, to this day, I haven't asked him, why were you so emotional? And I think that there had been as much invested in this case from them as I had invested as the plaintiff. You know, I will never know the the number of hours and the endless nights and weekends that they work trying to prepare and do all of their due diligence in terms of representing me. I mean, if, if you would have seen the volumes and volumes of documents that they brought to court every single day, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I had never been inside of a, a courtroom like that as a plaintiff or a defendant. It was just really amazing to watch. And it was almost surreal from the standpoint of, I, I can't believe this is this is actually happening. But these guys were just amazing warriors on my behalf. 
Well, I have a little bit of a tacky question that I'm going to couch in for the further advancement of the profession and educational purposes, right? So how do they get paid? Do they get paid a percentage of your ultimate judgment or do they get paid based off of their cost or, or whatnot? How does that dynamic play out? Well, there's the fees are set by, I believe it's set by state statute, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they're, they can't just charge whatever they want to charge. They have a percentage that they can, that they can recover based okay. upon the outcome of, of the trial. Now, what's but does that come, about, but does that come out of your money that you've no, that you've been awarded? It's, so they're no, they're going to be on paid top of that. Except, okay, so Hallandale Beach if they lose this appeal, they're out the 4.4 million plus the front pay verdict and the cost to the your attorney your legal team. Plus their own legal team. Yes, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is, that already. <laughs> which is which is which is the the really you know, bananas part, right? When we talk about the types of decisions that, you know, governments or local governments make, think about it from the standpoint of just purely financial, right? It's like, okay, maybe we didn't want to pay, you know, think about it in baseball terms. You sign somebody and the guy ends up being a bust, but he's he's got a, a contract that's like, okay, all right, it was a busted, you know, draft pick, but let's just pay him and be done with it. Because yeah. ultimately you know you're going to lose and you're going to incur additional cost with regard to your legal fees. And so it's just really a phenomenon that I don't understand, partly because I think the rationale is we don't want to allow a precedent to be set that, hey, we can be sued and we yeah. want to discourage anybody else from doing it. But also it's just, I think, egotistical to think I don't want to just kind of roll over even though one of the elected officials had decided, well, when Mr. Roseman has his day in court, you know, he'll he'll have an opportunity to, you know, state his case, which we did that. And now they're they're deciding to appeal. Right. There's a sick joke in the whole idea that so far, the only people who've got paid are the defense attorneys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? They, they get paid. Um, they get paid no matter what. And, and yeah. to their and to their benefit, it's almost like. They're in the room, right? These these shade meetings, they're in the room telling their client, well, we want to encourage you to appeal because yada, yada, yada. Well, part of it is of course, yeah, we, want, we, we yeah. have more billable hours that we can submit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So it's like, Absolutely. hello. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you know the answer to this question or if you've even gotten your head to that that point yet. But since you received the, the breach of contract uh, severance pay, which is income, and you have the back pay and the front pay. Are those three components subject to your typical federal income taxes once you get that victory? Do you know about that? And how does that yeah. relate to the – what about the non-economic damages? Are those subject to taxes as well or is that tax-free? The non-economic damages is not because I did consult my CPA on that. But the the back pay, the any, anything that is tied to your income is taxable, but it's not taxable in the typical way. It's taxable at the highest rate, which is another – Sort oh, really? subject, yeah. Because when you're adding that kind of a lump sum income, you now oh, because you you're not you're like yeah, a luxury. Yeah. It's almost like a luxury tax that you're having to pay. You're right because it's not amortized over every year. You're paying a one right. lump sum, which is a little bit of a kick in the balls, right? Well, it's that. it's a it's a pretty big kick, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and and we actually tried to we actually tried to get the the court to allow us to include that in our judgment and that and the judge excluded it. he did he did not allow that which which to me is like you know that's further of an unfairness yes know, to us because it's like okay so yeah you get this money but you're having to now pay 
I think it's like 37% yeah. tax rate because of the lump sum nature of it that you would have otherwise had it amortized over time right. paying a much lower rate. Yeah, it's but, very frustrating. You know, it's just uh, it's just part of our our legal system. Another uh, question for you related to this. I'm just I'm just a finance guy, and I'm always fascinated by these details. So you win the case in February 2022, and they're appealing now. And here we are, literally over a year later. Are you eligible then, if you do ultimately win the case, to get interest or penalties on the fact that you didn't get the money for over a year? Is that also yeah. Yeah, okay. there's 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 interest on top. It's also I think governed by the statute. It's a small amount. It's certainly not you know given given the state of our inflation. It's not commensurate with the inflation so, rate. So you're losing again a little bit, right? I'm because... losing again a little bit. Um, you know, and and there's and this is part of the the dynamic is that I think some defendants will appeal in hopes that the plaintiff will want to come to the table and settle. They have never extended, the city has never extended any kind of a settlement offer. There's never been any discussion. As a matter of fact, Brian and I, shortly after, he's like, okay, maybe this is a time to to discuss something. And originally, I was going to be inclined that way, but I'm thinking, and my wife was like, well, why why would we if they're not even, if they've not even broached the subject? So we're going to broach the subject that they have not even introduced only to get further insulted. So we just kind of like said, you know what, we're not going to offer it. If they want to put something on the table, we'll consider it, obviously. But there's the the dilemma or the weighing of the present value of money versus the future undetermined right. value, you know, because you don't know what a, what an appellate court is going to do. Absolutely. So your book, okay, so let's fast forward now to your first court date. It's basically in June or July of 2017, about six months after you're officially fired. And that's when you have your first case. And that's basically just to hear this BS dismiss, you know, motion to dismiss the case, this, you know, typical legal procedure. We don't really hear much in the book between that point and the actual court case or whatnot, but I'm sure there's a bunch of intermediate court case steps and stuff along the process. Can you just walk us through briefly the, the timeline to get from that first case or that first court hearing to the actual eventual trial? There were the first, as you, as you pointed out, the first hearing was in June of 2017, roughly six months after we filed the complaint. The, the complaint was filed January, I think January 25th of 2017. And then the first hearing date was in in June of that year. The whole purpose of the of the hearing was a motion to dismiss the defendant's counsel brazenly said to the judge, I haven't even read the defendant's complaint. Yeah, you're talking about this like, uh, about this joker named Chris Stern who you're not a yeah, fan of, right? Yeah, so well, I, not a being not a fan is is really like a compliment. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I bet, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, so he came to court unprepared. He came to court saying to the judge, hey, I haven't even read the plaintiff's complaint, but we're asking the court to dismiss the case, you know, just the the fact that it doesn't have any merit, which for anybody who's never gone through this or understands the the system, our, our judicial system, one would think that if you come to court and you say that to a judge, that the judge would say, get the hell out of my courtroom. Right. How are you going to come to It's disrespectful me to the court. To, to tell me yeah. you haven't even read the plaintiff's complaint and yet you're coming asking for a motion to dismiss. It's almost right. like, you know, you didn't even do your homework and you're coming in trying to. So it, it was just, you know, the first introduction to how insulting the defendant's 
council was. And and I also would say if the client, if the city of Hallandale Beach had been made aware that their attorney that they hired didn't even bother to read the complaint and came to court and prepared, I'm thinking, is that a really good use of taxpayer dollars that you hire somebody right. who's not even really doing their work and yeah. that yet they're coming to court that way? Because you but, best believe he billed them for that appearance. Of course he did. Of course he did. And he probably billed them for, you know, prep, you know, court yes, prep. prep work that he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that prep, he didn't really do. Prepping his excuse is probably what he yeah. was doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. So, yeah. so Daniel, uh, that brings up an interesting point. This is a random question, but throughout this whole process, you know, this goes on for years. Did anybody from Hallandale Beach, whether it was an elected official the new city manager or city attorney, did anybody ever show up to court on behalf of Hallandale Beach as far as an actual person to see what was going on and observe what was transpiring? Well, from that uh, initial hearing date in June of 2017, all the way through trial, you asked me that question. What was occurring was a series of of depositions and discovery. So both sides essentially are asking the other side, okay, show us what you got. Show us the evidence that you're going to present. That's the way it, that's the way it works. And you have all of these depositions. Now, throughout the two and a half, three year period, the city, uh, with regard to the in- individuals who would be deposed, were constantly delaying and having to reschedule their scheduled deposition dates. So all of these depositions were like, okay, we're scheduled for a deposition. And I don't remember the exact dates, but let's call it October of 2017. And these are and these are well in advance. These are well in advance right. because we we provide the list of all of the people that we want to depose. We provide, you know, all of the questions and and the themes of the things that our attorneys are going to ask. So a couple of days before Stearns and his team would say, "Well, you know, commissioner so and so can't make it because he's got to, you know, pluck his eyebrows or whatever the lame right. excuse was at right. the time." So this happened over and over and over again. So I want the audience to understand that, you know, you're thinking in your mind very linearly that these things are going to happen sequentially. They're going to happen one right after the other. And it's just like this long dragged out process and you get to your appointment date, your deposition date. And then they say, no, we can't make it today. We're going to have to, you know, move it again. All of those things are just continued emotional Trauma attacks and trauma yeah. because you know you can't get to you can't get to the finish line. That's really what what all that happened during that period of time. You have all of these you know, and you have various hearing dates for uh, what's going to be allowed as admissible in court, what's not going to be allowed as admissible in courts. All of the hearing dates to kind of the structure of the trial, etc. It's it's all very technical. It's all very part of the process, but it's very tedious. And that's when you realize without qualified, experienced representatives, this would be not just deep water, but this is shark infested, really tumultuous, you know, yeah. waters that you yeah. get into because you just don't understand. No chance for um, a layman. No chance no, no, for no. a layman. Yeah. None whatsoever. None yeah. whatsoever. At one point in the book, you talked about how when you your attorneys came aboard, they gave you instructions. Uh, one of the instructions was, hey, you need to continue looking for work and you need to document that. What other types of stuff did you were you instructed to do and prep and how to handle yourself? I mean, you had one uh, one other uh, one other legal uh, uh, counsel advice it was like, hey, you need to 
you need to realize that this is going to go on forever. Like it's going to go on for a long time. So you need to just sort of forget about it and move on with your life and just sort of put this in the, in the, in the side, you know, in the back pocket, so to speak. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what kind of instructions or feedback or counsel received just on a, on a personal basis, not like on your legal case, but how you're supposed to, you know, just carry on because this is a tough situation for someone who's never been in it before. You know, uh, the the gentleman that actually mentioned, you know, just kind of going on with life was was Freddie, you know, my friend and, and the initial attorney. And I, I write about the fact that, you know, when he said that, my wife and I were both in his in his new office because he had just opened his his own practice. I, I had I had this kind of wry smile, you know, like playing it off. But as my wife and I got in the car, neither one of us said a word. We were both like really angry, but not at each other, but what right. was happening. When we finally did talk about it, it was just like one of these things where in your mind, you're thinking, because I think most people have this vision of a court case happening, kind of like it happens on Law and Order, right? 60 minutes, with, right? <laughs> 60 minutes <laughs> with commercials, right? So, <laughs> so you're thinking, this is going to be quick. You know, you hear about people that do something today and within a year they're in, in trial. So in your mind, you have this expectation of length of time and process for how all of this is going to happen. And when Freddie said that, it was literally, you know, you get the wind knocked out of you because you're like, man, two or three years. And at the time he said that two or three years was like forever. If he had told right. me seven years, I literally would have jumped in, in front of a moving train. It's like, yeah. there's no way that we can sustain this situation for this length of time. And I think there's an element to it too, Daniel, when you feel like you are the, um, you've been wrong so severely, right? So egregiously, right? That, you know, you talk about even kind of good versus evil in, in pure evil in, in your book about this personal attack on you and your, your career and whatnot. It's like you just have this sense of right and wrong. Like this is not the way it's supposed to be, right? It's supposed to Correct. be justice is supposed to happen faster than this, right? Yes, and, and it doesn't. It the, and the, it doesn't. The, the legal system is very slow, very slow. It's, it's very slow, and it's very, in many elements, Joe, very unfair. I would not bore the audience with a lot of the details, but I will tell you that there were many things that we wanted to be introduced as part of our claim during trial that the judge says, no, you're not going to, we're not going to allow that. And we're going to dismiss that. And it's like, you know, and so your legal team prepped all this has all of this documentation, it's evidence. And because the other side objects to it and the judge makes a decision right there on the spot and says, nope, you know, it's out. And well, we might, like, we, might, we might be getting too much into the weeds here, but there was a, the, I didn't understand why the Lynn Whitfield case materials were not really allowed to be fully introduced because that was essentially the entire genesis for why you're even in the courtroom in the first place, right? Well, I mean, at, and, the, at the end of the day, Dan, I didn't ask you this in the first episode, Daniel, but at the end of the day, if you had not provided any testimony in that investigation on Lynn Whitfield, do you think you would have gotten fired on November 29th? Or do no. you think it was going to happen? You think you would have survived that? Yes. Okay. For you think sure. for sure you putting your name on the line and calling out Keith London in that investigation, that sealed the deal for you. You're done at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. There, there's there's no doubt in my mind now to think that he wouldn't have come after me for something else at a later date. Hey, I want yeah. I want I want my own manager or I want somebody different. Very, very possible because that's just the type of person that he is. But I don't think it would have been a termination with cause and being accused of all of the things that I was accused of. So it would have definitely gone down. If it went down, it would have gone down very, very differently, right. for sure. So you and asked so, me. You, yeah, the judge, judge isn't let this in. I'm like, why isn't the judge letting this in? This is ridiculous. 
Well, he didn't let that in. He'd also, we had intended in our opening statements to introduce Annabelle Lima Tobbs, the video clip of her apologizing in a public meeting, right. saying that it was pure retaliation against Mr. Roseman and can against Ms. Whitfield. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry, I stepped on you there, uh, Daniel, but you, can you just repeat that? Because essentially this was, this was incredible because I'm reading the book and this is in uh, 2018. So basically two years after you're fired, for whatever reason, Annabelle Limatab, she goes into a public council a commission meeting and she basically says that you were wronged. Well, it's not for whatever reason. It was after her deposition. Oh, <laughs> so. okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I missed so, that part. I missed that well, part. Well, it, her her deposition, you know, what what I enlighten readers about in the book is that a lot of times elected officials can grandstand when the cameras are on during a commission public meeting. hearing. Yeah, yeah. But but in a deposition, it's a different story. You know, you can't you can't grandstand. You can't spin the truth. You you either tell the truth or you could be accused and found guilty of perjury. So the evidence was presented to her and she really could not get away from it. So it was after her deposition that she comes and gives this public statement about <laughs> the evidence. <laughs> now, obviously she doesn't frame it that way, but that's what it was. So she says, I was misled by Keith London. And of course they had had their own falling out, but she comes on the record and says, it was pure retaliation against and against Mr. Roseman, against Ms. Whitfield, and I'm sorry. So she has this apology. So my attorneys during trial wanted during opening statements to include that entire, I think it was a minute, 20-second clip. And the judge said, no, you can't introduce it during your opening remarks. But when she is on the stand, you can play a portion of the clip. So stuff like that, that you think it's a slam dunk, is not always a slam dunk because you are at, at the behest of whoever the judge happens to be. Right, right. And so did, were you able to get all three? You, I assume you got all three of the uh, commissioners on the stand and during, the, during the actual trial, right? Yes, yes. All three that voted to, no, to terminate the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious because you don't really talk about it, but how did Keith London do? Did he was he was he a good witness or was he? Uh, he do you he call was that? he. I do, listen. This is one of those things that you're never going to forget. Um, <laughs> he was he was in true um, Keith London character. He was being you know a jerk and being evasive and being at times uncooperative. You know even to the court's instructions about speaking into the mic and every time that you know my attorneys would ask a question, he's like. Would you repeat the question? Uh, I don't think I understand the question. And it's like, uh -huh. you know, just being a total douchebag, right? So he was being his true self. And it was interesting as I observed a little bit of the body language and, and seeing how the jury was responding to this from my vantage point, you could tell after the first seven or eight minutes, they were like, this guy's, you know, like, he's helping you. Exactly. You know, the yeah. way that he was responding and the way that he was just, Evade, evading a direct line of questioning right. really uh, favored our case because you could tell, like, if this guy really had, you know, if he's gonna if he's gonna act that way in court, how's he gonna act in private with you and you know, right. uh, yeah, right. absolutely, right. yeah, right. Yeah. So all of those things were were a factor. You had asked me earlier in terms of the timeline after the July seventeenth, I think, meeting, right? Yep. You had asked me what what. What transpired in that time, as I mentioned, it was all a series of depositions and a series of, of discovery and, and all of that stuff 
is really what comprised that kind of that block of time between yeah. the original complaint and when we finally were able to get to court. But yeah. but they had also, my attorneys had also asked me to document all of the job applications that I had to pursue. Because part of the, the back pay is that you have to demonstrate a concerted effort to regain employment. Right. So, you can be sitting on a couch at home eating bonbons exactly, and watching movies, exactly, right? So, exactly. Yeah. So going through that, and I had a pretty... I won't call it sophisticated, but I had a pretty organized spreadsheet of, of jobs that I had applied for, both private sector, public sector, nonprofit, you know, universities, whatever categories, down to the detail of the, you know, the person that I reached out to or the, the website that I pursued. And all of those things were introduced in court to demonstrate my compliance with, you know, demonstrating a good faith effort to, to find gainful employment. And, and one of the things that... I think listeners would be interested to know or, or need to appreciate is that when you go through something like this, you mentioned about the wrongfulness of what has been done to you and you're still having to apply. And in those applications, as anyone who's applying for a job knows, one of the key questions that they're going to ask you is, have you ever been terminated from a previous employment? <laughs> so you're having to say yes. And then within a certain, a limited number of characters, you're having to say what the circumstances were, right? You know, rising yeah. to that termination. Yeah, like, how do you explain that? There, it's such a weird, it's such a degrading experience, right? Because you know, when you're a city manager, you're applying for a job. You're almost always asked at some point in the process, were you terminated or, or did you have to resign or whatnot? That comes up, right? Or even right. if you disclose it yourself. But you usually get it a different context or a format or, you know, get an opportunity to expand on it. You know, here you're relegated to and I don't want to denigrate lower income work or anything like that. But, you know, you go to these traditional applications. You're right. You get this little tiny box and everyone knows, like, how do you put how do I put my story in this little box? Who's going to believe me anyway? Right. Exactly. Gonna, it's 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 like you're getting victimized over and over throughout this entire process. Emotionally, uh, your pride, your dignity as a man, taking care of your family and. But Joe, not only not only is it that part what you just described, I know several HR executives who say when you're looking at a high level executive position, department director on up, once you tick that box that says you've been terminated, your your application literally gets moved to another pile. You're tainted. You're tainted. <laughs> it's like you're yeah. you're not because if you've got other why take the risk? Consider, why, why take the risk? Why, what what's so special about this person when yeah. you've got you know? five or 10 other people that you can consider. It's like, okay, yep, move them over. It's uh, so, why take the risk. Yep. And so you're having to go through this process of continually applying, and knowing the outcome. So it's an emotional, you know, like putting your heart and your, your emotions through a meat grinder continually because you're having to, to show that you're, you're making a good faith effort. So it's just really tumultuous. And when you feel like you are the innocent victim here and you're getting wronged over and over, it's just, uh, man, I, I felt so bad for you in so many parts of the, the book. I mean, you have this one one section in your book where you talk about going into Costco, mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? And and, and no, no offense to Costco workers or anything like that, but it's just like you're a city manager and here you are going into Costco to try to get a job and you can't even get a job at Costco because, you know, yeah, probably because they're like, hey, why are we going to hire this guy? He's overqualified or that's this whole, it's this whole mind effort. You know what I mean? It's just, and and all I was really trying to do was to find, I mean, I was thinking I could be a gas station attendant if I can at least get insurance for myself and my wife. Right. Then, you know, okay, it's not where I want to be, but at least it's a interim, you know, means to an end. And it was really, you know, as a, as a husband, it was a hard thing to see how my wife reacted to it. 
you know, seeing me walk in there with my folder, with, with my resume, going to see the manager. And she's like, I can't even remember what she said because it was just very raw at that moment, having right. to experience that. But I needed to include it because I think the readers and, and people in our profession need to understand this is the risk. These are the vulnerabilities. You know, you never, I would have never thought that I would see myself going into Costco to apply for a job just to get insurance. I would have never saw myself as a rideshare driver. I would have never seen myself as someone willing to take whatever just to put food on the table and to regain a little bit of that dignity that was taken away from me. Right. Uh, but but yet that's where I found myself. Get, getting back to your uh, your trial, I'm kind of curious about this. So it was, about, it was like roughly a nine-day trial and you're going through it and – you're in there every day, obviously. It's your case. I'm sure mm -hmm. you're, you're super invested. And each day passes. Do you have some sort of debrief with your counsel afterwards and they give you a play-by-play -play of what, how they felt it went? Or, you know, you have this interesting deal uh, in your book too, unrelated to the trial, but I, I, it's appropriately related to this, this question. You talk about you get home from work or something. It's a long day at the office as a city manager, and your wife wants to ask you questions about how your day went. And the last thing you want to do is regurgitate everything <laughs> you just went through, right? Right. And I'm sure some attorneys don't want to regurgitate everything that happens to their client after the case because it's been emotionally, mentally draining and exhausting. Right? right. But can you walk me through the dynamic between you and your counsel after each day of testimony and how that played out? And were you getting a play by play were they, or were they playing it close to the vest and just saying, hey, everything's fine? Or can you walk me through that a little bit? There was very little conversation outside of just the, the very casual conversation. First of all, they had to be adjusting their game plan because of the amount of breaks and the inconsistency in terms of the start times for the trial. And so we had a slew of, not a slew, but a, a larger list of witnesses that were supposed to be called, which we had to be adjusting based upon all of the motion for objections and, and, and the motion for a mistrial that, that Chris Stearns lodged. And so we would have to have recesses to deal with that. And, and every recess that um, the judge called for, the jury gets dismissed. And then you have this hearing that could take anywhere from 10 minutes to 40 minutes. And then the judge goes back in chambers and sit, you know, stays there for another 20 minutes. And then before you know it, it's an hour, hour and a half. So you factor all of that into a already shortened day of, of trial, and it becomes very very long. And so at the end of the, each day, my, my attorneys said very little. I couldn't really talk about what had transpired because my wife was supposed to be one of our witnesses. So I couldn't really tell her what was going on. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting dynamic. So you're kind of on your own little island by yourself in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, man. Right? And, I had to, and I had to really just kind of like swallow that. And, and anyone who, when you've had a rough stretch, even as a city manager, even though you're dog tired, it's really hard to sleep. So exponentially, I would get, you know, not home, but to the Airbnb that we were staying at, I would get to the house and I tried to relax and it was very hard to relax. So I got very little sleep <laughs> during those nine days yeah. um, because, you know, you're just replaying everything that you had heard and then you're anticipating what's going to happen the next day. And you're seeing the discussions amongst your legal team and you're seeing how they are making adjustments on the fly and you're wondering, I don't really know how this is going. <laughs> it's like, I right. think it's going well, but I'm not really sure. And then there were moments that I'm like, this is not going well at all. 
because it was not what we wanted. And the judge made a, a decision that was not what we wanted. And so you had this kind of roller coaster up and down set of emotions that are happening throughout this nine day period. Well, that kind of that kind of dovetails into my next question, and that is in your book, you talk about essentially as the trial's concluding and wrapping up, that you were essentially at your lowest sort of point of confidence in the, how the case was going, that yeah. you, you weren't thinking was, things were going to go well for you. Can you elaborate on what why you felt so beat down at the end of that trial? Because ultimately you end up winning, so obviously that's, that, that's, you know, spoiler alert, you know, that's great <laughs> news, but right, you know, you, right before the end, you were pretty beaten down and and not very confident in the outcome why, why was that the two two reasons one was the um the set of jury instructions was akin to probably three you know yellow phone books right so really really not not the legal instructions but thick evidence so all of the documents that have been presented during trial were all part of what the jury was going to take back into deliberation they also had a very lengthy jury instructions, like 27 pages worth of jury instructions. And, you know, when you look at the composition of the jury, this is not, as I think I write about, this is not like a John Grisham novel where you have very intellectual individuals. This is a cross-representation of people in the county. And while I remember all of the interviews, I could tell you that there were not a lot of folks who were at an executive level position who would understand the nuances of an employment agreement and all of the information that was presented let, let, alone, let alone the context of how this there you go yeah, yeah there you go yeah, and yeah. and so my confidence was really at its lowest because of all of those factors and because the second reason because the defense counsel was was objecting to the way that certain languages uh language was written in the jury instruction which caused a further you know recess and then them having to agree on the language, both sides had to agree on the language and then the judge allowed that. And so when that part was read, I was looking at the way that the jury was, their body language and their kind of their engagement. Remember, most jurors, when they serve on jury duty, they're thinking it's going to be a day, max three days. Yeah, My trial yeah. was nine days. Right. So three times the, the, the length of what people would typically expect. So they were really tired. They were exhausted. They were overwhelmed in terms of the information I could tell. And it was just, I didn't think that they were going to really understand it. And so they were just probably going to dismiss the information and, and there was going to be discord within the deliberation. So I was really at my lowest point. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with you know my fatigue at the time myself. And, and the fact that my attorneys were not super exuberant saying, you know, we got everything we yeah. wanted. It went great. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so I was really thinking, I, I don't know. The only thing that I was grateful for was that we finally had our day in court and we got to at least tell a version of, of the story to independent jurors. But I honestly couldn't tell how it was going to go. When you're on the stand testifying in your own trial, right? Are is uh, inside baseball? Are you coached in any way by your legal team as far as how to? your posture, your, where you're supposed to make eye contact. Are you, are you encouraged or not encouraged to look at the jury members in the juror box? I mean, can you, is there anything that goes on in that dynamic when you're going into such a important case like this? What's the prep like? There was a little bit of that. I mean, we went through the questions that they were going to ask me for the most part. There were a couple of questions that, that Brian, who was the one that uh, on our team, the one that questioned me, he says, there's a, there's a few questions that I'm not going to prep you on because I want it to be Authentic, a genuine, an authentic yeah. reaction. 
it interesting during one of the preps with my testimony, they wanted to know whether I would be willing to say with regard to the use of the P card, whether that was a mistake on my part. And so that was a discussion. I said, no, I don't want to go that route. And this was the first time that I had had kind of a, I wouldn't even say kind of pushback. It was just a, a disagreement in philosophy. And I said to them, look, if I say it was a mistake, then I'm almost admitting to doing something wrong. In right. my case, it was not a mistake. It was intentional. It was It was above it was, board. Everything was It was above spell. board. I said yeah. that I was going to take my daughter, my my boss at the time had okayed the travel request and whatever her expenditures were had been reimbursed to the city immediately upon my arrival. And I wasn't even the city manager at the time. So it wasn't even anything that I needed to apologize for. So I pushed back and I said, "No. If you guys ask me out on the stand, I'm going to say exactly that. This is not anything that was done inappropriately. And so they said, okay, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll go, we'll go your route. And so that was the only time that there was a little bit of a disagreement in terms of a philosophical approach. But for the most part, the only amount of coaching was, you know, just try to make sure that we're having a conversation, but at the same time, make, make sure that you're making eye contact with the jury from time to time. Okay. That was it. And, and during the so during your testimony and also during the trial, you, you alluded to a little bit with uh, London how the jurors didn't seem to respond very well to him. But were you able to make eye contact with the jury? Did you get a good? Did you were able to get a vibe or a sense of where they might be in this whole uh, situation as far as where they came down? Or were these Man, just like poker players? They were they were really hard to read. There were a few of them that um, there was one, and that she ended up being an alternate juror. She worked for. Uh, Broward Sheriff's Office, and she worked in an HR capacity. And she was the only juror of the eight jurors. There were six regular jurors and two alternates who was taking ferocious notes. And because of her background, I'm thinking, man, I really hope that she ends up being the chairperson of of the jury pool because I'm thinking she's she's going to at least get it from the standpoint of you know what an employment contract is and how the, how many times the city violated their own policies, etc. But no, they were really hard to read. Granted, this was still somewhat post-COVID, so several of them had their face masks on. And so all I could see was their eyes, and I couldn't right. really tell. A couple of them were falling asleep during some of the testimony, <laughs> which did not bode well for their engagement. So right. all of these things contributed to my feeling of this thing is not going not gonna to go well at the end. So something I was a little bit unclear of, and first of all, it's interesting because in the book it talks about there's six jurors and there's two alternates, which I mm-hmm. thought there was going to be more than six uh, actual jurors. Did you need to get all six a unanimous verdict or was yes. it a plurality? You, so you need to get all six. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you- which was which was which contributed, as I said, to why I was feeling the way that I was feeling because I'm thinking there's no way that all six of them are going to a understand the voluminous amount of evidence that that had been introduced be able to understand and agree to the 27 pages of jury instructions and come back with a unanimous verdict in my favor right so the trial wraps up and you guys you know exit the courtroom or whatnot because the jurors are going to go deliberate mm-hmm Walk me through what's going on with you and your legal counsel then, because, you know, there's always weird theories about, okay, if the jury comes back really quick, it's good or it's bad. You know, there's all these different schools of thoughts and what have you. So did you and your legal counsel talk? When, just walk me through. Or was everyone just sort of in their own little headspace and just waiting yes. for the, okay. It was, it was very quiet. It was a Friday afternoon and it was on the 14th floor of the Broward County Courthouse. And 
Because I'm thinking you probably got thinking you'll be coming back on Monday no matter what, probably because it's late in the day, right? I mean, you no, think you're, did, no, the did, judge the judge had already said this trial ends today. Oh, really? Yeah. So they they were going to have to deliberate until they got came back with you know. Oh a, wow. A yeah. Okay. So we were we were there and everybody was kind of in their own. A couple of people checking their phones. People, you know, a couple of on my team. I think one of the team members stayed inside the the courtroom. Another one had just kind of walked down one hall. Uh, my wife and I were sitting on the bench, not saying much to one another. The defense counsel was kind of doing their own thing as well, but no conversation, nothing st- strategy. Or if if they come back with this, it was very uh, just wait, just wait, <laughs> just wait. And it was a long, it was a long hour and 10 minutes, man. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it was, but yet it was only an hour and 10 minutes and they come back and I can't even imagine. So, I mean, we've all seen court cases on TV. We've all seen them like in real life. We've all seen the movies or whatnot. I mean, you are coming to the finish line here. You're seven years in, right? Essentially Mm -hmm. six years or whatnot. in at this point, Mm -hmm. and you have to wait for this verdict to get read. Like, yeah, man, can you even summarize that emotional sense of where, I mean, what are you thinking or feeling in that moment? How do you even put it into words? I, I Joe, to, to, to be quite candid, there was really very little thought because my heart was pounding as hard as I ever felt my heart pound. And, and I really couldn't process what was happening. I knew it was standing up because obviously when the verdict is read, everybody stands up as, as the clerk is reading the various, because I think there were eight different questions that they needed to respond to. There was one question that, that we had asked the jurors to, to say yes to each question, except for one, uh, where they had to answer no to. And that was the only thing that I remember was important. It's like, okay, question number four has to be no when all of the other ones are yes. But as the responses from the jurors are being read by the clerk, I... I'm listening to each response and I'm watching, you know, kind of like looking over at my attorneys and they're putting their head down with each response. And I'm thinking their body language seems to be that this thing is not going well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not going well. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, what is happening right now? What, what is, I, I just don't even hear anything. Right. And the only time that my, you know, kind of like, it, it perked up when they when they put in the amounts that they that the jury had awarded. Then I look at my my Brian, and then Robert starts crying as well. And I'm like, okay, wait, what what is happening? Because <laughs> if <laughs> I lost, win? they would be putting numbers in, right? Yeah, but, 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 it, but the oh, but I'm sorry to interrupt you there too, Daniel. But I'm sure the last thing in the world you want to do is jump to a false conclusion of victory at this moment because yes. you don't want to allow your you're so vulnerable and you've been guarded and protected yourself. The last thing you want to do is get your mind in a place where you think you've won and find out you've lost. Right. That'd be like uh, horrible. It was, it was, it was tremendously inconsistent. I mean, I still have not been able to process exactly the emotions. I tried to articulate it as best as I could, you know, in the book, but, but honestly there were so many versions of that moment, that scene that I, I just tried to make sure that, that it could be coherent to the reader. But honestly, what was happening inside me was completely chaotic. And then I looked back at my wife. And so she's completely flushed, completely crying. And I'm thinking this, we, we I don't know what, what just happened. <laughs> right. Um, but it was a real, it was a real 
moment that it takes you, I think, a few moments to let it process before you can understand exactly what occurred. So you have this victory, right? Obviously, it's a euphoric sense of feeling a wave of emotions and whatnot. And like we talked about earlier at the beginning of this episode, but it's not in the book. Then you have to have this, uh, you know, bench trial with a judge for the mm -hmm. uh, front pay, front pay, uh, mm -hmm. what have you. Can you walk us really quick through the process of the after the verdict and kind of going to that step and just sort of was there anything that was there anything interesting that transpired at that case or that bench trial that was worth noting in this conversation? No, nothing interesting other than, you know, us reaching my attorneys reaching back out to the judge post the verdict saying, hey, we had wanted a bench trial. When can we get on your calendar to be able to have that here? Is this the same judge that heard the first the same case? judge, Judge okay. Robinson. Yeah, it was right. supposed to be at that same time, but because this was already Friday afternoon, he's like, well, we're not doing it now. So reach back out to my office and we'll try to get you a date. And it ended up being July of that of 2022 when we okay. were able to have the bench trial. So as I said, between February of 2022 and July, nothing really significant other than just, you know, Again, just waiting for that bench trial and, and waiting to see the outcome of that. And I assume you were fairly confident going into that bench trial just because you just won your case and the judge right. was there. I assume you guys were pretty confident at that point, right? Yeah, and I actually even asked that question. I'm like, I, I asked Brian, I said, how does the verdict play in terms of the, the bench trial? He says, well, it plays, you know, obviously when the jury is awarding you the back pay and the wrongful termination, that is a tremendous springboard for the claim of your eligibility for front pay. Right. It's, it's going to ultimately be up to the judge to determine how much front pay you get. But the fact is, you're likely to get something because of the jury's award. And I, and I assume that once you got the the February victory and then the July, even before the July bench trial or whatnot, I'm assuming that your counsel was like, hey, expect an appeal from Hallandale Beach. They're gonna, probably going to appeal. Like That's pretty much pretty much a given, right, at the, at the yeah. point? So you were, even though you're celebrating, you weren't naive enough to be thinking, oh, I'm going to be cashing a check in, in 30 days or something like that. No, and my attorneys have actually told me that in, when I did my deposition in, in December, they said, you know, this is likely going to be another two years after the jury trial, simply because that's just par for the course. Either side is going to submit or request an appeal to whatever the outcome happens to be. In my mind, I had heard it, Joe, but I had actually wanted that not to be the case. I'm thinking maybe cooler heads will prevail. You know, people will come to their senses and, you know, we'll get to the end of this thing before, but that's not the case. Understand. Yeah. And so, you know, as we wrap up this episode, Daniel, part two, uh, Revenge of the Public Servant, where you beat them in court, you got a massive victory. Obviously, you haven't cashed the check yet. You've gone through a long ordeal here. Do you have, you know, something you'd never found yourself in, never expected to be in, but you've now lived something that most of us will never live. But there's going to be other people listening to this podcast that are either in something similar at this moment, or they're going to be in something similar down the line. What were your, what are your major takeaways or learning experiences about how this whole thing unfolded? And what would you, have, uh, from a legal standpoint, what would you have done differently or, or would you have done anything differently? I, I can't say that I would have done anything differently. I, I really will candidly say and honestly say that the idea of, of good legal representation is critical. I've heard so many people through LinkedIn respond to me telling me, you know, I went through not as bad of an ordeal, but a similar ordeal, and I didn't have good legal representation. So to your point in some of your previous episodes, as as city managers or, or people in this profession, don't be naive into thinking that, you know, you can just get anybody because when you get into these tumultuous 
waters, you better be sure you have really good legal representation that are going to be experts. If it's a labor issue, don't just get any old attorney. Make sure that it's somebody who specializes in the in that field and someone who's going to have your best interest. Look at their caseload, look at their past, you know, portfolio. Same things that we would do as administrators, right? You want to yeah. vet the professional that's going to be representing you. And and then just really I think the takeaway is be prepared that it's going to last much, much longer than what you anticipate. Because in my mind, that was one of the, the big misconceptions. I'm thinking that it was going to be, you know, a 60 minute episode. Right, right. right. Um, and, and I had no idea that it was going to be much longer. So when you are treading into these waters, you better be prepared financially, emotionally, and everything else, both you and your family for a very long road of litigation. Absolutely. And I, and we talked about this a little bit in the previous episode. And I've talked about it before, but I do think that we as city managers, public sector executives need to be uh, more proactive in preparing, playing defense, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. our negotiations for a contract, we should be more protective and in, 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 in trying to minimize or mitigate the risk, minimize the downside risk exposure that we face. And I think also the same thing can be said for our attorneys, our legal counsel. And I'm speaking from my own, my, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this right now too, because I, I don't know who I would call right now if I was going to be in a similar situation that you found yourself in. And I think the key is, is that probably city managers need to be thinking about, okay, what am I going to do if I'm in this situation? Who is the, who is, who am I hitting in the quote unquote Rolodex that's going to help me? Because, you know, you talked about it earlier and I I don't want to belabor the point, but just because you think you can call person X doesn't mean that person X is going to be able to help you because of the way this industry works and how tight knit it is and there's conflicts and so forth and so on. So just because you think you can call this individual to help you or this law firm even to help you, that might not be the case. And so I think we need to be a little bit more uh, proactive in preparing ourselves for a worst case scenario instead of just being reactionary in the moment. You have some thoughts on that? Attorneys that understand the nuances of local government are often getting their bread buttered by local by government. By local government. Clients. Yes. So if you ever need them to advocate or represent you as an individual plaintiff, the chances of them taking the case are very, very small. And so that brings unto itself a very lonely feeling and a real dilemma because you have to bring, you have to engage someone who doesn't understand the complexity of how government works. And so it becomes very, very difficult. I bet it. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Very well said, Daniel. Well, you know, you've walked a line that many of us have not walked. So thank you for sharing your experience, Daniel. I think it's going to be very useful for a lot of individuals, even just the last couple of minutes where we talked about being proactive with your legal counsel instead of being reactionary. I'm Joe Turner. I am the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. My guest today has been Daniel Rosemond. He's the author of Death of the Public Servant. And uh, we're going to come back again with part three, Betrayal of the Public Servant, where we're going to talk about his appeal and some other aspects to this whole saga that uh, many of you are not aware of. It's going to blow your mind. I think there's a lot of things about this situation that many of you do not know, that I didn't know, and I think we need to have some discussions about. So uh, thank you, Daniel, for being on the show. And until next time, uh, catch you later.